There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Danny Strong tackles the opioid epidemic in the new TV miniseries Dope Sick, which premieres today on Hulu starring Michael Keaton. I spoke with Strong about creating the series as well as growing up attending Quentin Tarantino's video store and starring in 90s shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Gilmore Girls, and Seinfeld before writing HBO's Recount and Game Change, and then creating TV's Empire. Danny Strong, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. What's up, Jason? It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, no, you kidding? The pleasure's ours. Um, we're talking about your brand new miniseries on Hulu, uh, Dope Sick, which hits Hulu on October 13th. Um, now, you and I know what it's about, obviously. Um, you've been doing interviews on all day, but <laughs> for our listeners that don't know, um, hit them with the premise really quick. Um, so this is the story of the opioid, cri- opioid crisis, but specifically tied into the crimes of Purdue Pharma. So uh, the show follows uh, a U.S. attorney and his prosecutors who built um, a case against Purdue um, that, that was um, settled in 2007, um, and that we're also following a DEA agent who's actively uh, trying to uh, prevent Purdue from selling so many pills on the streets, this active investigation. Uh, we're also in the halls of Purdue Pharma as we're watching their criminal and deceptive marketing campaigns. We were watching them discuss them, devise them. And then we go from um, their, their you know, deadly deception to a small coal town in which we see uh, a, a country doctor played by Michael Keaton uh, prescribing Oxycontin to his patients because he's been lied to by a Purdue Pharma rep. So it's it's in telling these intertwining stories, we're hoping to tell the larger story of how the opioid crisis happens. Um, and it's one thing, you know, you hear about um, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, and they, they lied to doctors about the drug being much more addictive than they claimed. That's sort of the general understanding of what happened, and, and that is what happened. However, when you uh, do a deep dive into the level of manipulation, deceit, and deception, what they went to to trick doctors, um, it's truly shocking. It goes from independent pain societies putting out studies showing uh, Oxycontin and opioids in general are more safe than previously um, previously thought. Well, then you uncover, oh, Purdue Pharma either uh, financed or partially financed the entire, quote, independent pain society. Uh, you see them manipulating blood charts. You see them, um, you, you know, these deceptive advertising campaigns that are that are complete lies over and over and over again. Uh, and it's it's extremely shocking and infuriating and also um, plays as, as a pretty, you know, at times, um, 
dramatic and almost exciting piece of storytelling as we're watching these prosecutors uncover all these crimes. Oh, for sure. And you mentioned really quick, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, the the segment with Michael Keaton in the, the Virginia mining town. Um, that's going to hit home for us because, you know, we're in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area. Um, remind our listeners, uh, you know, what, what town that is. Well, it's a it's the town's called Finch Creek and, and it's the town is a it's a composite uh, town. You know, it's used to sort of represent uh, a many Appalachian uh, coal mining towns through southwestern Virginia, eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. You know, we didn't want to use one specific town because right. um, a we didn't want to stigmatize a town, uh, make people feel bad about the town. But we also wanted to have this kind of universal experience of of this town represents all these towns. And so that's why we had used, you know, uh, Keaton's character, Dr. Phoenix. He's a composite character. He's inspired by three different doctors I read about, but there's even one I interviewed, but there's even more Dr. Phoenixes than just, than just the three. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so the, the, the goal was to get as many true anecdotes and stories of abuse and addiction and how Oxycontin affects people's lives and their families' lives. Uh, so uh, we thought by by creating this this composite characters in this composite town, it would in some way uh, be more truthful because we wouldn't be trapped with one individual person's experiences. We could put in all these experiences and anecdotes into it, and it created this sort of more universal truth. Right, exactly. The I guess like the interweaving. Um... Would you would you call it a mosaic? Like I know you think of like those old Altman movies, or, or maybe a Soderbergh traffic, or something like that. There's interweaving storylines. Yeah, um, I worry the word mosaic makes it sound kind of boring. Right. Uh, it, it, it's not boring, you know. Although traffic is far from boring, traffic's awesome. Uh, and and traffic was an inspiration for the narrative structure of the piece for sure. The the intertwining stories. Yeah, and each of those intertwining stories, I mean, you have a deep cast. We mentioned Michael Keaton, but also Peter Sarsgaard, who I just topped off an interview with. I'll, I'll actually combine your two interviews back to back. Okay. But um, so Keaton Sarsgaard, I mean, Caitlin Deaver, um, Philippa Sue, so many. But um, just just dote on your cast really fast about how, how much of a pleasure it was working with those. Yeah, they're really amazing. Guys. They're truly amazing. It's truly the best of the best. They're so talented, and we were so lucky to have all of these incredible actors and they're all actors, actors. They're all actors that other actors just admire because they're at the highest level. And one of the, one of the reasons why we were able to get so many of them was, was when Michael Keaton said yes. So we had Michael Keaton starring and Barry Levinson directing. And then because of the subject matter, it, it became a project people really wanted to be a part of. And what was so great about um, everyone and was just as a, a happy bonus is um, what wonderful, intelligent, kind people they all were. There wasn't a bad apple in the group. Everyone showed up on set. They were so smart. They were so lovely to work with. And they were so passionate about the subject matter and excited to be there. So it was an incredible shoot. Oh, for sure. And you mentioned Barry Levinson. Uh, just talk about the collaboration between you, you know, you as a writer and him as 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 director. I mean, that guy's done it all. I mean, Diners I still cracks me up. And Rain Man and the Nat I mean, Natural, every I mean everything. You could go on and on. But um, had you guys ever worked with before? We never worked together. We're we're friends. We we uh, he was living in New York City for a long time and we didn't live that far from each other. So we'd go have breakfast, you know, every three or four months. And it was magic for me having breakfast with Barry Levinson three or four times a year, just getting to listen to his stories. Wait, He's, was it at had, a diner? <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish. I wish. That's so funny. 
Uh, but he's one of the great, um, he's one of the greats of the last 50 years. Um, and it's, it's sort of endless what he's done. Uh, and there's so much sage, so much wisdom. I called him Yoda on set because he was just this <laughs> Jedi master. I've never seen someone direct like that. And I directed the last two episodes. So to get there and be sort of attached to his waist for four months. So then when I went off to direct my own episodes, it was, it was you know, the, it was the best film school anyone could possibly ask for or imagine. Um, I just, I just love the guy. And, you know, he did it. Uh, we started in October, uh, no vaccine, no vaccine anywhere in sight. And he was 79 years old uh, and came to Virginia in a mask and a shield and directed the first two episodes of Dope Sick. It was really something to see. A mask and a shield. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Hey, so I'm curious, when did you actually stumble upon uh, Beth Macy's book? Because uh, we should we should tell our listeners it's based on dope sick dealers, doc doctors and the drug company that addicted America. Um, did you when how did you discover it? Did someone bring it to you or you, you I, I want to know that story? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's actually a, kind of a one of those quirky Hollywood stories where what happened was uh, John Goldwyn, who is a wonderful producer, uh, came to me to write and direct a movie about the Sackler family. And so I started researching the opioid crisis and, and the Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. And I thought, this is too big a story to just be about them. You know, I wanted to see all these other elements that I discussed earlier. Uh, and then I thought it needs to be a limited series. There's just too much here. Um, so I developed this whole show and I sold it to a studio, 20th Studios, which was part of the Disney Empire. Another studio in the Disney Empire, Fox 21, not knowing about my project, goes and buys the book Dope Sick in a bidding war. And I read about it on Deadline Hollywood. And I was, I couldn't believe it that, that there was a rival project in my own studio. It was surreal. Right. Um, and so then they realized this huge mistake that had happened and they asked us to team up. So I read Beth's book and I thought it was a wonderful book. Uh, then I met with Beth and she's just a, an incredible person. I call her national treasure, Beth Macy. And, and I just agreed to just bring her book and her into the fold. And she was in the writer's room and she was uh, a wonderful collaborator on the project. Awesome. Wow. That, that is wild. Um, yeah. Deadline. Deadlines. See, it pays to read. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you imagine just reading, you know, yeah. oh, well, now here's a big problem. Like, well, okay. All right. Yeah. My day just changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, remind our listeners real quick, you know, where, where you grew up, how you got in this racket to begin with. I know it was, you know, Manhattan Beach, California, I guess, but didn't, is, is it true that, you know, as a kid, you, you went to Tarantino's video store and rented movies from him? That was my video store when I was 11 years old. I would go because uh, I was into adult movies and by adult movies, I don't mean porno movies. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, clarify adult, that adult really quick <laughs> movies. Yeah. Yeah. I love 70s movies and, and Hitchcock movies. And so my mom knew that and there was this avant-garde video store. So she started taking me to the avant-garde video store and there was uh, the video store clerk was this, you know, really outgoing, you know, kind of quirky, dynamic guy named Quentin. And I loved him and I spent so much time with him. They were talking to him. They, they nicknamed me Little Quentin. And so they'd say, Quentin, Little Quentin's here. And I'd go in. And then my mom, at a certain point, she was, she was like, why do you spend so much time talking to Quentin? Because like, I love Quentin. He's great. Wow. Uh, and he would recommend all these crazy movies for, for me to watch. So I had this warped film school at the age of 11 uh, from a 24, 25-year-old Quentin Tarantino. That's so wild. That is so yeah. Wild. I yeah, love that crazy. you knew him back with just Quentin and you were to him. You were just, you know, the young kid Danny coming in. That's so wild. Yeah, uh, how history yeah. works. Well, out. I was 11. 
I was 11 and 12 because it was went over a few years, but I looked like I was seven or eight years old. So it was part of what everyone got such a kick out of. And Quentin knew my real age, but everyone just thought it was just so weird seeing what they thought was a seven-year-old, you know, talking about uh, Truffaut and Michael Cimino. It was, it was like this, this really kind of uh, strange uh, thing for other people in the video store. Yeah, you're probably one of the few who, you know, with the 400 blows, you're the same age as the kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, cool. Well, then a lot, of course, before we run, my listeners will kill me if I don't ask about some of those early acting, because you 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 sort of backdoored into writing and directing. First, you were an actor. Um, you were Jonathan on Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, and then I was. You know, the boyfriend Doyle on Gilmore Girls. Just memories of those two two shows really fast. I mean, you I mean there's a you're part of TV history from an acting side alone. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so incredible that those shows are so beloved and iconic. And um, I didn't see that happening while we were on the air. Um, You know, we weren't, neither show was a massive hit at the time, or even, you you know, they had some pop culture cred, they were seen sort of as teen shows. Um, And then over the years, they've become you know, beloved pieces of Americana entertainment. And, uh, you know, I'm so proud to have been a part of them. Uh, and, and it was, uh, both of them were, were wonderful experiences for me. Um, just getting to spend my 20s acting on these, these two unbelievable shows. And, you know, during my 20s, I was a pounding the pavement actor, just trying to, to get any job I could you know, uh, commercials, radio voiceovers, animation voiceover, you know, occasionally I'd get a film audition. Yeah, yeah you know, once once every three months I'd get a film audition, right? It was, that was the, the sacred thing that I could, I could, I could never get, although I would end up booking one of them. So I would do one movie a year as well during all this. So it was, it was, um, it wasn't easy to be honest with you. And that's why I started writing because of the psychological toll um, it took on me getting rejected all year long. Um, either they didn't want me uh, to audition, they didn't want to give me a callback, or they didn't want me for the part. I mean, that was what I heard all year. So I actually started writing is almost this therapy to just get my mind off all this rejection that was occurring all year. Oh, for sure. And um, in your in your writing, um, politics has really been a bit of a through line for you. I mean, maybe you didn't mean to at first, but it sort of has been from, you know, the game change thing, uh, recount, and then, you know, even even writing the screenplay for for the butler, um, the Forrest Whitaker and all the different times um, of his experiences throughout the years in the White House. Why do you think I mean, draw that through line for me? Why, why have you just always been interested in politics? Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's it, it is strange because I don't have a background in politics. And I don't have a background in journalism. I was just someone who was informed, um, but I wasn't even following the day to day machinations of Washington D.C. Um, but but I you know I I would I would read up on what was going on, but it made me so angry. I was so enraged by the politics of the time, particularly uh, the march into the Iraq War. There was something about it that just, um, that just, it enraged me. And I, I stayed angry for years <laughs> because of, because of the Iraq war. And I felt that we were completely lied to that Saddam Hussein, uh, clearly had nothing to do with 9-11 and now our government. And then the media just started backing that narrative that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11. And I felt like, I'm not an expert on any of this. And I know it was Al Qaeda. I know that, that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with it. So it was, it was, it was just this, this big lie um, and, uh, so then when I had been writing these comedies and they weren't successful, I saw a play 
about the buildup to the Iraq war, the exact thing that had made me so enraged and fired up for so many years. And the the war was still going on at the time. Um, I mean, it went on for for years. And when um, I walked out of the theater, I thought, and the play was called Stuff Happens by David Hare. It was about the buildup to the Iraq war. I walked out of the theater and I said, that's what I have to do. I have to write something like that, not these comedies that no one (laughs) are buying from me. And the first idea that popped into my head within 30 seconds of me making that decision that I need to write something like Stuff Happens was the Florida recount. It was, it was just like, boom, well, what about the Florida recount? Maybe you could do stuff happens with the Florida recount. Right. And, and it was crazy because Hollywood couldn't have been any less interested in a story like that at the time. The only place that was interested that could have, I could have sold it was HBO. And they had this reputation for being, you know, very elite um, and, and very, very snobby in the writers they hired. And I had never even written a drama before. So, you know, it was Tony Kushner, or David Hare. Those were the types of writers that they wanted to work with. So the whole thing seemed kind of crazy uh, to pursue, but I didn't care because once I started researching it, I thought this is the most incredible story I've come across in years. And then lo and behold, I sold the project to HBO. They bought it as a pitch. I wrote it. Um, They loved the script. And then eight weeks after I turned it in, it was greenlit with Sidney Pollack attached to direct. So it was, you know, sort of that it's the sort of follow your bliss uh, kind of moment of follow your passion. And then and then it totally changed my life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Everyone go back yeah. and check out recount. And then of course, game change. And then we mentioned the Butler too, but with Lee Daniels, but then you and Lee Daniels before we run, you guys, of course, co-created uh, one of the most successful TV shows as well. Empire. Uh, talk about just the creation of, of that whole show and those iconic characters. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. Cookie Lyons and, and Lucius are, are famous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy uh, how it all came together. So uh, we were in post-production on the Butler um, and Lee Daniels kept telling me, he's like, what are we doing next? We're magic together. We're magic together. We have to do something next together. And I said, well, let me figure, let me figure something out. Let me just think about it. So I had flown back to Los Angeles because I lived in New York and was driving around and there was a radio a news piece on a deal Sean Combs had just closed. And it was this huge deal. It was something like an $80 million deal. And I just thought, wow hip hop is so dynamic and, and wildly entertaining. And, and, you know, there's so much, you know, social uh, discussion with, within the world of hip hop. Why isn't there a mainstream hip hop movie? And then I thought, well, how would I do that if I did it? And I immediately thought of this play I love called the lion in winter. And oh my um, God, one of the greatest movies ever too, man. That yeah, movie. one of, one of my Look it up right movies. now. Oh my God. Yeah. And then King Lear, which the Lion in Winter is a King Lear story. Sure, sure. And I thought, well, why don't I do this like the Lion in Winter or King Lear? And then the whole idea kind of flooded into my head in about 90 seconds using those archetypes. So Cookie Lion uh, was inspired by Eleanor of Aquitaine. Wow. I would have never, I never knew that. Hip hop Eleanor of Aquitaine. And then I flew back to New York about a week later, met with Lee and just pitched him this concept of doing King Lear in a hip hop empire. And he just loved it. And then he said to me, he said, um, shouldn't we do this as a TV show instead of a movie? And I said, yes, yes, it's like Black Dynasty. And he just started <laughs> screaming in the Lee Daniels way. Yes, darling. Yes, it's Black Dynasty, darling. Uh, and that's, and that, that was the birth of Empire. 
Wow. Well, there you go. If you're a fan of Empire, everybody, go back and check out Lion and Winter and King Lear. There you go. Yeah. Wow. All right. Final, final before we wrap it around um, to Dope Sick. But um, I do want to know, I know our listeners will be interested in, you know, you writing that two-part finale to the Hunger Games, uh, Mockingjay. Um, is, was that daunting when they tell you to do that? That's such a, a popular, you know, franchise, books and movies. Um, how did you how did you approach saying, you know what, this is too much for, for one movie. I need to divide it into two if I'm going to bring this well, one properly. It, yeah, that wasn't my decision at all. They had already decided that when they were looking for a writer. Okay. So they had decided they were going to turn the last book into two movies. And that was sort of what was happening with those franchises at the time. I think Twilight did it. And there was one other big franchise. Harry that, Potter. Yeah. Yeah. Harry Potter. Right. Had, had just done it. So they they were on the hunt for a writer for it. And they reached out to 10 writers to, to, quote, pitch on it to see if they'd be interested in pitching. And I'll be honest with you, I was just flattered to be one of the writers they reached out to to see if I wanted to pitch. I just thought, wow, how cool is that, 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 I'm, that I'm in that group? And it was, you know, kind of the most sought after writing job of that time. The, the first film had already come out and it was a huge hit. So I literally just, you know, I hadn't even read the book yet. <laughs> so I read the book and then I came up with, sort of how I would do the two movies. I came up with sort of the thematic through line of it. But at the same time, they really wanted it to be very close to the book um, because the book is excellent and the fans love the book. So it was an unusual job in, in trying to get as much of the book in. But at the same time, it's an adaptation. You can't get all the book in. It's not physically possible. So, right. so what do you do? Um, and uh, and so it was, you know, it, it was a very it was a very challenging job, uh, but I was honored to be part of the franchise, uh, and uh, and that was that was my uh, my my Hunger Games three and four experience. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, thank you so much for you know all of those uh, detours into other work. But no, <laughs> everyone, my pleasure. Check out Dope Sick for sure. I guess what's the final sell on it? You know, why, what do you hope people? What do you hope people will take away from it? Obviously, you know, the op opioid epidemic is is just ravaging the country at right now. Um, but, um, you know, what what do you think people are getting enlightened by by watching this? Um, I think that there are two things that I would really uh, love it if people could take away. I, I would love it if there was, you know, I view the show as the trial that Purdue Pharma never got so that there would be a, a visceral intellectual understanding by anyone who watches this show um, exactly what Purdue Pharma did so that their crimes could be documented in a, in a piece of mainstream entertainment. Um, that was one so that the, the, the victims of the opioid crisis, the family members of victims could have an understanding of what happened to them or what happened to their loved ones in, 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 in real detail that you actually watch. The other thing that I'm hoping uh, people get out of it is that they um, is that it offers solutions um, to paths forward, to, to destigmatize um, medical assisted treatments that are extremely effective in treating opioid use disorder. Um, so that also that the, once again, the relatives and loved ones and friends of people that have opioid use disorder know what's going on with them. So they know that their, their brain chemistry has been literally changed by the drug, that their frontal lobe has been damaged. And that is why they can't not take it. That's why they feel intense pain when they don't have the drug, which is what being, uh, which is what dope sick 
That's that's what dope sick means, that pain you feel uh, when you don't have the drugs. So if there could be this increased understanding and an increased acceptance of therapies, it could hopefully be some sort of effective path at moving forward and beyond uh, this crisis. Wow. So there you go. So dope sick is sort of another word for like withdrawal then. Yeah, exactly. Wow. 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 Well, thanks for joining us. I, I really appreciate everything. And it's, it, uh, we encourage our listeners to check it out. October 13th, Dope Sick miniseries on Hulu. Uh, Danny Strong, it's been a pleasure. I, I will, I will have to end my sign off line is, is a Seinfeld reference. Thanks for the pics, uh, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> for some of my relatives, it never got bigger than when I was Vincent on uh, the Vincent's picks episode of Seinfeld. I've never surpassed that for many, uh, many, a, 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 a relative. It was the it was the comeback, right? Like where you're offering you're offering uh, your own critics picks at, at a video store, right? On the yes. videos. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe I was channeling Quentin Tarantino when I was playing Vincent uh, uh, from my from my childhood. There you go, Quentin inspired Vincent. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for doing this. This was a blast, Jason. Thanks. It was a riot. I really appreciate it. Take care. I also spoke with Dope Six star Peter Sarsgaard about why he took the role, as well as memories of his great journalism role in Shattered Glass. Hey, Peter. Thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, but um, let's talk about your latest work, Dope Sick, which uh, premieres on Hulu on Wednesday, October. 13th. Now, you and I know what it's about, but for the benefit of our listeners, just give, give them the quick uh, premise really quick. Well, this is uh, about the uh, opioid crisis, the, the part of it that was uh, uh, involved Oxycontin, that the Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family were largely responsible for creating and looks at the issue from a variety of perspectives from the uh, attorneys who prosecuted the case to users, to DEA agent, to a doctor who prescribed it, and uh, really gets at the story from all these multiple viewpoints where they overlap a bit in a very kind of tense, compelling narrative over the course of eight episodes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for, for us here being a DC station, there are some, a little bit of local ties to our area. Obviously, you know, there, there's stuff in, in the DEA, you know, sort of the more government stuff. But, um, but uh, there's also a Virginia, uh, right nearby, Virginia mining community that's affected. Explain. That's right. I mean, that was sort of ground zero for the origin of this epidemic. Um, they targeted this community largely because um, they believed it would be a place that would be fertile ground for such a drug. And it, it unfortunately really proved to be and it kind of went all the way up through Ohio. Um, I actually in 2016 did a documentary short as part of a series for epics with Norman Lear producing where uh, I went and met, uh, you know, users and dealers and drove around with police officers and hung out with families, all who were affected by this drug. Cool. Well, tell me about your character. What made him so uh, juicy to play, you know, Rick Mountcastle? Why, why, what was he so fun to sink your teeth in? Well, you know, the joy of playing Rick Mountcastle was, first of all, I rarely get offered a part like this where it was, um, you know, it's a David and Goliath story. It's these small town um, uh, lawyers who were attacking, or, you know, uh, prosecuting one of the biggest uh, pharmaceutical companies in the United States uh, for just complete all kinds of neglect and malfeasance. And um, it's it was very, very tricky 
for them to uh, figure out a way to go at this case. And so I was really flattered that Danny approached me. A lot of the time, you know, I'm offered, I would be offered the other part. (laughs) (laughs) So um, he, I remember one of the first things he said when he was talking about it is he was like, you'd be a good guy. You'd be a really good guy. And actually I would say having met Rick Mountcastle now after I did it, you know, I am really flattered to play someone who is such an honorable person. That's cool. And then tell me about working alongside, you know, the cast is is very deep, but I mean, especially Michael Keaton. I mean, did he bring some of that spotlight investigative uh, mojo with you? <laughs> now you're investigating another company, but, well, you know, um, the, you know the, what was it like working with him? Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing about this show is that like Rosario is kind of in her part and Michael Keaton's in his part, Stolberg's in his part, you know, like we're all we all have our own little sections. And I actually only overlapped with Michael Keaton in one scene. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even quite like we were in the same scene. Um, you know, we were in the same courtroom and uh, we must have glanced at each other once or twice. And uh, that, that was a bit of heartache. I really, really am a huge fan, have been since I was a kid. I mean, um, my kids were raised on Beetlejuice. So, uh, and I mean, what an incredible talent, what an incredible intellect also. Oh yeah, you're right. He'll always be, he'll always be our Batman too. If we, for those of us of a certain age. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> um, cool. Had, had you read the, you know, the book, Beth Macy's book? Uh, what was it called? Dope Sick Dealers, Doctors and the Drunk Company that Addicted America. Had you read that before or, or only after you got the role, then you, you doubled back and, and did your due diligence? So yeah, when I was offered the part, um, I ended up shortly thereafter making a movie with my wife in Greece on an island in Greece. And this is during, in the heart of uh, first phase of COVID. So I was in Greece from August to November uh, doing this movie with my wife. And I listened to the author read the book, um, which was, I mean, once, sometimes I will kind of go back and forth with a book. I'll read some and I'll listen to some just so I can plow through it quickly while I'm doing something else. And once I started listening to her read her own work and the passion that she had for the subject, which was so evident, evident in her reading of it, there was no other way to go about it. It was, uh, it's a really, really compelling listen and I highly recommend it. So you did the old audiobook uh, trick there in, in the vacation in Greece. I love it. Um, yeah. Well, cool. not vacation, work, work, workation. Working, which is, <laughs> we, which we know is never really a vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah um well cool well then you know so it was this book but then you know danny strong who had to you know empire and game change and recount and all the list goes on and on but he you know he was the one who had to uh, you know adapt this thing as the creator of this miniseries and, and writer of it um you know what do you think was you know you know just just dish on dote on him you know and make him blush on, on why why he was such the the right man for the job to to bring what was on the page to the or, or in the in your case the audiobook to the screen how did he train how good did he translate <laughs> well it's like it was not immediately obvious how you'd go about doing this i mean it's a book filled with all these multiple narratives some of which overlap but um you know i think that it's kind of in the model of the movie traffic mm-hmm. you know if you've seen that the way Soderbergh. That yeah exactly the way that those narratives interweave um there is to me, no finer showrunner that I have ever worked with or know of 
um, in Hollywood than Danny Strong. And like, you know, you may know him from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but um, he's he's also quite a, quite an actor. Um, but talking to him and hearing his level of understanding about the subject um, was absolutely one of the things that made me do it. And even while we were working sometimes, you know, you're shooting these things in such a crazy order and I would get a little lost and, or I wouldn't quite understand, you know, some of the complicated machinations of what was going on. And he always knew the person, the, uh, the law, you know, what exactly it was we were, we were fighting for, why we couldn't do this and could do this as lawyers. I mean, it was like, uh, it was awesome. And, you know, in, in shows like this that do have a lot of information, the tendency is to saddle the, the actors with all of it and just have them kind of explain to another character what that character would already know so that the audience will pick it up. And um, I think we did almost none of that. Uh, and yet he writes this in such a way that you really glean what's going on in a completely natural way that I don't think requires a lot of um, homework or effort from an audience that's probably not ready for that. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the titans of the industry. So it's really cool. It's cool to hear that, you know, with all these moving pieces of interweaving storylines, if, if you can get lost as an actor of where exactly you are, or what law are we talking about? It's kind of cool that he has it all, you know, in, in his head and can, and can just spit it right out. That, that's, that's I a really pretend cool tidbit. for a living, you know. Yeah. Um, so for some reason, everybody, you know, like I was cast last year to play like um, uh, a politician a lawyer, um, a professor, a famous professor of like Italian literature. All these are jobs that I would not have in life. <laughs> <laughs> but you get to dabble in a little of each. That's why it's I was the worst cool. student you could ever possibly imagine. <laughs> Definitely. What was it like real quick uh, working? We mentioned Danny Strong, but working with, you know, Barry Levinson was directing too. I mean, man, I, I could go on and on about Diner and <laughs> The Natural and Rain Man and everything. I mean, the guy's done it all. But, um, you know, what, what, what was sort of his working with him up close and personal? What was sort of his, I guess, gift? Yeah. So I had done a film with him, which actually is going to come out on HBO, I think, relatively soon. Oh, what's it called? Um, that one is now called Survivor. OK. Um, it's about the boxer Harry Haft, who uh, was a um in the holocaust he was in a prison camp and made to box other jews for the sport and entertainment of uh nazi guards oh my and he God. survived that is like and we've he all heard of the we've heard of the you know the more allegorical you know joe lewis max schmeling you know knocking out hitler on more of a symbolic level but this oh my god that is like yeah. it's as but real then as he gets. actually he made it back to the states and he ended up fighting rocky marciano so uh, Ben Foster plays that role and I play the reporter who's sort of tracking the story. And so I knew him from that. Right. And this is one of the greatest guys to work for. There's a reason that like Al Pacino comes back for more and Robert De Niro comes back for more. Um, he really makes actors feel comfortable. He's an inspiring guy. Um, he's a very fast moving director. Like, hold on. <laughs> hold on, because you're going to be done at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, he just knows what he wants and knows how to shoot it. it. To me, it's just like, if I could do Barry Levinson movies every year, I would. 
<laughs> yeah, the combo of Barry Levinson and Danny Strong. That you can't get much better than that. If if that's not enough to check out Dope Sick, I don't know. I don't know what what get get the Hulu subscription now for those two alone. Um, well, cool. Well, um, I know I know we're short on time, but before we go, um, I I really just on a personal level need to thank you. You know, as a, as a journalist, um, you know, we 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 grew up loving Shattered Glass. It's like they show that they show that in you know uh, our J schools and stuff all the time. But memories of that, really quick. I, I won't ask you to go through your whole filmography but just just this one role man i mean i thought you you were so dang good in that and you want to you want to trust uh hayden christensen's character so much you want to be there oh, yeah. but as you piece it together you that, that's like a heartbreaking role sort of to play you know yeah well um yet another job i would never really have in life <laughs> um i when i did that documentary in dayton i i realized how terrible i was at asking questions and coming up with questions to ask people um but uh, yeah, I showed up for that uh, meeting about that job with Billy Ray, who's an incredible guy. Like to me, he is the, the baseball coach of directors. He's like the guy that's like, he's got a real baseball coach vibe. Oh, underrated um, too. Cause he wrote Captain Phillips and Richard, like he's, un he's, he's oh, underrated if you ask we're me. We're talking. Yeah. I mean, not in my mind, he's underrated. In my mind, he's like, um, but I showed up that audition having just arrived from Costa Rica where I'd spent the last six weeks. I was in flip-flops. I was complete. I looked like a complete dirtbag. And somehow <laughs> he decided that I could play this role. And um, again, that was like a role a little bit like this one in that I'm playing someone who, who really is after the truth and um, there's a detective quality, like putting together information and trying to find out the truth and reveal the truth. Um, that's always going to be really enticing as an actor. And Rosario Dawson, who's in this, was also in it. Um, and uh, yeah, we, I remember there's one scene in that movie where I blow up at Chloe Sauvigny, like in a, in a, and it's kind of toward the end of the film. And we had shot the whole film and I had kept it buttoned up the whole time. I was just playing a guy who never loses his shit. And we actually went back and added that scene just because the director was like, Billy was like, I need to see you lose it. The audience is gonna lose their minds if you never let your feelings out. We've watched you hold, bite your tongue for, for two hours. It's gotta come out. And uh, you know, that's why I try to work with smart people. <laughs> absolutely well i mean you you your reputation precedes you man shattered glass garden state jarhead i mean it goes on and on and on i even like black mass a lot i mean and, and everything man so anyway i love but, my role in black mass that's really that was a really fun part to play i think it needs to be held up with the, the greater the among the best gangster flicks I, I feel like i mean it got good reviews but i just feel like i don't know for, for whatever reason you, sort of get lost in the shuffle a little when people start ranking the, the good gangster movies but that one was so good yeah he's a great director yeah, Scott. Mr. Cooper. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, but the latest one, Dope Sick, check it out. Um, it premieres on Hulu uh, October 13th. And uh, yeah, seriously, it, it was a treat getting to chat with you. Um, you know, I think I think you're one of the best at your craft out there. So keep up the good work, sir. Thank you, buddy. Be well. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.